Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Simply Scary Podcast, Season 1, Episode 17. I'm your Master of Ceremonies, G.M. Danielson. to join us for this journey, prepare yourself to experience a world where wrong is right, where the twisted perception of those descending into cognizant chaos strikes out at the realm of the rational with oblivious ecstasy. Delusion drives their single-mindedness. They can be so driven that they overcome any obstacle and ignore any information contrary to their understanding. Ever-increasing paranoia pushes them further into the abyss, and evil is projected onto enigmatic situations, all in an effort to cement their righteousness. These unstable elements perceive themselves as heroes, but the frightening truth is that they are sinking into madness. And now, it is time for us to (laughs) go mad together. (laughs) 
The first stop on our eerie itinerary will examine the correspondence expressing the affections of its writer for his beloved Mary. The manifesto of emotion reminiscences about the beautiful idyllic moments, but obsessively attempts to bury the prior regrets. The memorandum takes a markedly disturbing turn when another woman enters the picture. Marshall Ragsdale performs C. M. Crockford's Dearest. Dearest, you understand, don't you? Why I did what I did. I had to save myself to preserve my soul from the clutches of forces I couldn't fathom. I took the necessary steps to salvage my anatomy. I refused to be reborn. The fear paralyzed me and ultimately led to our final horrific moments. And for that, I am truly sorry. But allow me to go back to the beginning. During our time together, I noticed that you enjoyed gazing out the windows at the energetic, enthralled hummingbirds that arrived daily early in the morning to suck the nectar from your feeders. In your bathrobe and slippers, with your coffee mug in hand, you resembled one of the stereotypical housewives depicted in ancient magazine ads. The sun would spill through the glass into the kitchen, and as you were known to do on more than one occasion, you'd look at me and remark, It's the start. They signal it. Then I'd smile and kiss you on the cheek, which never failed to make you blush. <laughs> we met at Maxine's party. One of those college get-togethers where everything and nothing is discussed all at once. We liked to tell other people how we met. So the story goes, Maxine introduced you to me, and you looked positively radiant. The evening shade made your fine auburn hair and bright green eyes appear even more brilliant than usual. You were modest, prim, and almost obnoxiously intelligent. Almost. I tried to restrain my own eccentricities, but you didn't seem to mind them in the slightest. We kissed later that night in Maxine's kitchen, surrounded by richly stained dishes and cheap window shades the color of sandpaper. Superstar was floating on the air, playing somewhere on tinny speakers. You'll have to excuse my attention to detail, it, it seems frivolous, I know, but I feel as if I need to, have to explain everything as I saw it. Perhaps then you'll grasp the reasoning behind my actions. Over the next few weeks, we started dating, or courting, as you liked to call it. You were pre-med. You played chess and enjoyed reading non-fiction. I was a pathology major, endlessly fascinated by the root causes of everything, as you well know. I enjoyed opera and PBS shows, something you found endearingly archaic. You used to tell me I was an old soul while stroking my prematurely graying temple. Over the coming months, Massachusetts's infamous frosty winter bite gave way to a typical muddy spring, and along with the changing of the seasons, 
we fall deeper and deeper in love. One day, as we lay entwined in bed, I felt secure enough in our relationship to confide in you the truth about my family and its dark history, about the madness we'd been cursed with, which ran through our genetic lines, often resulting in disaster and recurring violence. I told you everything about us, about me, everything that is except about Caroline. Honestly, I was so fearful of her at the time that I dared not speak her name for fear she would consider my words an invitation. You'll have to forgive me, Mary. You'll have to forgive me, Mary, and I hope you'll understand. I only wanted to protect us. Besides, I didn't want you to think I'd gone crazy. If I had told you about Caroline, no good would have come of it, I assure you. She would have been the death of us. Aside from my one glaring omission, I confessed to you fully. After revealing all of the sordid details of my family's past, I admitted to you that I couldn't bear the thought of having children out of fear of the consequences, and I told you I would understand if you wanted nothing to do with me. I looked intently into your green eyes, praying for acceptance and sympathy. You paused, taking it all in and then kissed my palms. It's all right, George. It doesn't matter. You stupid fool. You know I love you, don't you? Oh, Mary, Mary. You were everything to me. Of course, in hindsight, I am idealizing you. You certainly had your flaws, didn't you? You'd interrupt me in the midst of arguments, something that always infuriated me. You never removed the lint from the dryer even after I'd warned you repeatedly it could start a fire. You often cleared your throat by spitting into the sink, and more than once you mocked my interest in collecting things. The machine you used to control your apnea was noisy and made it difficult to sleep at times, and you had a slight lisp that sometimes drove me... No, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I ought to focus on the positives. How your auburn hair appeared to float. How your cheeks were always blushing a little. How you laughed. <laughs> how you laughed. Oh, I loved the way it carried through the air and seemed to hover momentarily. I could swear the rooms in our home grew a bit brighter when you smiled. Then again, my perception of everyday things was always a little odd. Luckily for me, you found this charming. I married you, with all of our friends and your family attending. We danced to Unchained Melody and Super Freak and cut the cake. We laughed and drank for hours until the grass was dappled with morning dew. The night of our wedding... After the frivolity had come to an end, you were sleeping soundly beside me. I remained wide awake, considering how it felt to be free of anxiety for perhaps the first time in my life. For once, the actions of my wretched ancestors and the reality of the conditions I had inherited from them appeared irrelevant. For a brief moment, I dismissed fate entirely and imagined the very curse itself had been broken. After all, Caroline hadn't visited in months. 
Everything had been going so well, and I was at peace. I felt truly free. But it was all a ruse, a false epiphany. And by the time I questioned it, it was far too late. For seven years, we lived together in a suburb of Newton while I taught at BU. And you made your way up the ladder within the pathology department of Charles MGH. The money wasn't great at first, but we slowly built a life together. And I think it's fair to say we lived comfortably. I know that only mattered for you when it came to the bigger things. You were never one for trivialities. In time, you taught me how to cook, and I enjoyed surprising you with your favorites. I served rabbit with mint jelly so many times over the years that I lost count. We went to parks and watched the dogs wrestle, bounding over each other with restless enthusiasm. Like all couples, we'd get under each other's skin and we'd fight. But we always made up. In spite of our imperfections and divergent tastes, arguments were rare, and we seemed more drawn to one another with each passing day. It was around that time that something happened, which destroyed any chance you and I had of experiencing a happy, normal life together. One night, for the first time in years, Caroline returned and came to me in a dream. She appeared as she usually did, bathed in shadow, at once beautiful and terrible to behold, with feminine features discounted by grotesque deformities, bright scarlet hair, unnaturally black eyes, a hunched back, and a mouth spread a little too wide, sporting a grin that resembled that of a leering Barbary ape. She extended a finger in my direction and beckoned. Come to me, she croaked. Come. Then she released her jaws as wide as the length of her torso as I suddenly tumbled headfirst into the blackness. I awoke, screaming uncontrollably, and you comforted me. That's when it began. Sometime later, while I was sorting laundry, something shifted inside of me. I became transfixed by the warmth of the clothing I held in my hands, and I kept staring at one particular pair of your underwear, the ones you'd wear on humid Massachusetts days when you didn't care about the sweat soaking through and ruining every item. I stood hypnotized by your clothing, though consciously I knew I had no real reason to be. I'd folded and sorted our clothes hundreds, perhaps thousands of times. Still, I continued to look at your garments, fascinated by their simple patterns, knowing that you'd just worn them, that you'd possessed them, that your body had imprinted itself onto these seemingly insignificant items. How'd that old song go? These foolish things remind me of you. I deposited all of the undergarments onto the bed and proceeded to toss and turn on the sheets, imagining I could feel your skin, your touch, 
all over the soft, immediate cotton, the wool, and the silk, each article moving around the bed, sticking to my flesh as they once did to yours. Then I suddenly stopped, realizing what I was doing. I picked up your discarded items and resumed sorting them, trying to revert back to sanity. But I knew already that those were the last moments of normalcy I'd ever have. Not long afterwards, when I was running errands, say, picking up milk or stopping at the bank, I started to use your clipped, kindly voice with the clerks, chatting lightly, experimenting with it. I used your phrases in conversation, and was soon unable to stop. You were taken aback when I interrupted you once in the middle of dinner, something I rarely ever did. At night, I stared at the ceiling and longed for my eyes to change color from brown to green in a flash of lightning. Once, while you were away, I put on your ill-fitting bathrobe and went downstairs to feed the hummingbirds and take in the bliss of a new start. My new start. Did you understand what was occurring? The strange transfiguration I was undergoing? And did you understand then, I wonder? Occasionally, I would notice you staring at me, concern evident in your expression. In the moments of silence that followed, I began to experience a sharp paranoia, realizing that you sensed something was terribly wrong. Once, while conversing with a friend on the porch over beers, I intended to bring up what was going on, but avoided the subject. I couldn't even articulate what was happening. You see, my personality, my consciousness, as it were, was, if not disintegrating, then capitulating, in fact, to an alternative it considered far superior to itself. I had believed that I could live a normal life, that my mind wouldn't give in to the madness that had plagued my family, the endless cycles of psychosis and rage, and at last, the blood that brought previous generations crumbling into nothingness. I foolishly believed that by finding a companion so far removed from my tainted origins and familial destruction, that I was safe. Oh God, I was so wrong. I had come to love you so deeply, I had started to take on your personality. Your thoughts, your habits, and they as a whole were gutting my own distinctive nature. I was in the process, Mary, of becoming you. The George that I had been would be eradicated, and a new Mary would emerge. A newborn creature, simultaneously beautiful and terrifying. Was this new Mary even real? merely contrived from my memories and beliefs about you? Or was it just as valid a creature? Something that would overpower and consume its original form, just as infant spiders kill their mothers? I turned these flights of fancy over and over in my head while the pipes creaked and the nights grew longer and longer. Things went on like this for two more months until, at the dead of night, as you lay fast asleep, I went into your small closet by the end of the hallway and assembled an outfit. Your angora sweater, stockings, white-toed boots, 
red panties, bright white skirt, and the beautiful black gloves you always saved for special occasions. With considerable difficulty, I slipped into everything and then put on rouge, eyeliner, and that cherry lipstick I always liked on you. I walked slowly, carefully, in front of the mirror, concentrating, trying hard to meet your standards of beauty and refinery, then burst into tears. I could be you, yes, I could come so close, but I would never be the real thing. I had to be an exact replica or nothing else. And even if I wore your clothes and mimicked your walk, style, and voice, I knew I would never be identical. I could never line up to your superb image, your perfectly gendered sensibility. I was nothing more than a parody of you, Mary. That was all. And this realization tortured me. In spite of what certain groups and spectrums of sexuality would have us believe, I knew my own interests came from a far darker place than theirs, unknown to most, and unmistakably frightening. And George, as you knew him, was no more. By this point, the man you and I once knew, the very personality I had clung to for my entire life, had been slowly erased, and was now long gone, dominated by the newborn Mary. If at that moment I had told you everything, you wouldn't, couldn't have understood. You would have been horrified and separated from me forever, while I'd almost certainly have been committed, carted off to some quiet and secluded place. I could never allow that, for I loved you and thrived on your very presence. You were once fond of quoting a scene from Jane Eyre, where Rochester tells Jane that he feels a deep connection to her by means of a string beneath his left rib. How ironic it seemed that my own experience should resemble a ghastly reprise of that very scene, one of your favorites. I continued to resist my transfiguration. I wanted to remain George, begged to remain autonomous. I could hardly bear the strain beneath my two competing personas, sensing always that my new form was bristling just beneath my skin. You see, my dearest, she taunted me always, this new Mary, even when we busied ourselves with the mundane, whether washing dishes or sorting the mail, she nagged at me wailing and screaming to be freed. My desperation grew by the minute, hour by hour, and the struggle to suppress her, to keep her silent, became utterly exhausting. When you asked what had been troubling me, I insisted it was stress, telling you that the reason I screamed in my sleep was because of my work. Nothing could have been farther from the truth. The entire time, it was Caroline working on me, driving me toward my destiny. By then, Mary, she seemed to mirror you in every way, down to your auburn hair and green eyes, but that mouth of hers and those teeth were still too wide, and in my dreams she would swallow me whole. 
While you slept, I stared at the ceiling and prayed, and over the course of several months, slowly, agonizingly, ran through every conceivable option. And day by day, one by one, every possible solution faded, until at last, by process of elimination, just one unforgivable option remained. I realized at once that I could never bring myself to leave you, and that so long as you lived, my life could never truly begin. I had to, don't you see? I had to. I used Wolfsbane on you. You remember, of course, from the history classes, Claudius' wife poisoned his food with it. Over dinner on a brutal January night, I kept everything light and happy even as my interior cracked and cried out. Upon your arrival that evening, you were clearly astonished to discover I had cooked for us, and thrilled to find I'd made your childhood favorite. You accepted my explanation that I'd simply wanted to surprise us. You. Us. It was hidden in your pasta, blended into the fine, creamy carbonara sauce. We laughed and talked as you ate, and all the while my heart screamed. I'd given you a lethal dose, enough that I'd wake suddenly in the nights afterwards, recalling the sound of your voice as you shrieked in agony. Once the reaction started, there was no denying the evil I had done. You lived for several more hours, vomiting for much of it, my grief and terror all too evident even as you thought at first that you had the flu. Then your cheeks began to burn, and I recoiled in the face of your suffering. Then, while seated on the cold tiles of the bathroom floor, holding you in my arms, you somehow realized what I had done. Your eyes, alight with a combination of shock, fear, and perhaps somewhere, love. I held you for hours, weeping all the while, even when it was clear you were no longer breathing. Then I called the police. It wasn't difficult to convince the officers that your sleep apnea was to blame for your suffocation. Initially, they had been suspicious, but my emotional recollections were quite persuasive, and ultimately they sympathized with me and took me at my word. If there had ever been any doubt, the testimony of bereaved friends and family put a stop to it, and as no one suspected foul play, no toxicology report was ever requested or produced. We buried you once the investigation had run its course. You looked so beautiful in your polished oak casket, your lips so frighteningly pristine. It's been a year now, and while friends have gently suggested that I ought to get back out there, I know I never will. I'm haunted by what I've done, damned by a curse I can only hope will end with me, and thus put a stop to this rotten line forever. I write this letter now as testament to my action, to tell the true story. And for you, I wish for your forgiveness, 
though I don't deserve it. Please, Mary, forgive me. Please. I beg you. I have murdered you. And still I ask for mercy, pounding whatever spirit I know is present, though I suspect I'll receive no such grace in whatever world awaits me. I had no choice. I want you to see that. I had to free myself somehow, even though doing so may have come at the expense of, of my mortal soul. I realize I don't deserve your forgiveness, yet here I am begging for it. I can only hope that wherever you are, that you still love me and wait for me, and that I am no longer chained to the creature I was once becoming. Caroline no longer visits, at least there's that. She's gone now, buried with you. Perhaps you'll take solace in knowing that every morning I tend to your former ritual. In my bathrobe and slippers, coffee mug in hand, I feed the hummingbirds, watching their wings jitter as they zoom about the crisp air. I smile and think of you. And why shouldn't I? After all, they signal the start. Hmm, we all wish to be beautiful butterflies. But for some people, the shedding of skin isn't enough to hide the reality that tarnishes their romance. After this brief message, we'll meet a man who hunts real-life monsters. The hunt is on when we return. Want to give that little goblin on your list something special this season? Chilling Tales for Dark Nights makes a wonderful gift. So go to ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com forward slash tour and give the gift of Chilling Tales this season. Turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Archibald? Uh, Archibald! Yeah, Jim, what? Uh, I took the interns for a walk, uh, I cleaned the blood off your guillotine, and I put fresh dirt in your coffin. And, and hey, didn't I say call me Archie? Yes, yes, I know you said Archie, but I prefer calling you Archibald. Yeah, well, I prefer to call you a low-rent Dracula. Oh, goodness, for the sake of us all. Well, uh, welcome back, listeners. <laughs> and now, for our final act of attrition. Who, someone who needs attrition is Archibald. Yes, I'm sorry about that. Uh, anyway, we present, for your consideration, a father whose relationship with his son begins with a tragedy. 
As the father does his best to care for his ward, he discovers that a recently arrived neighbor appears to have a suspicious interest in his family, their home, and more alarmingly, his son. The new arrival's behavior soon awakens this frightened parent's fury. But what is set into motion will reveal a truth far too frightening to consider. Jesse Cornett performs Harlan Guthrie's Those Who Hunt Monsters. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I always loved the name Calvin. Growing up, I had fond memories of reading Calvin and Hobbes comics in the backyard with my little brother. We'd spend the day hanging out in the tree fort laughing like madmen at the mischief caused by those two. It was the only name that came to mind when my wife told me we were pregnant, and the thought of having a scrappy little tyke running around causing mischief just made the idea of becoming a father less scary. There were other famous Calvins. Calvin Coolidge is the only one that comes to mind at the moment, and maybe that's the Calvin my wife thought of when she agreed to the name but to me it was always after the rambunctious little troublemaker. Sadly, she never got to meet our little Calvin as she died giving birth to him. Needless to say, he was brought into this world tainted, and though his blonde hair and soft brown eyes were unlike his mother's, he was the spitting image of her to our family and friends. It's an odd thing passing around a child with the thought of death fresh in everyone's minds, looking at this small human so innocent and pure, and yet knowing it had already taken a life. I think that's part of the reason I decided to have him baptized. I don't believe in God, but I had to take my feelings out of it. Becoming a father, a single father at that, meant that I wasn't just in charge of looking out only for myself anymore. I was responsible for someone else's soul. I could care less if I spend eternity in so-called hellfire, but I wasn't going to risk putting Calvin through that. The term is called Pascal's Wager. Essentially, it means that it is better to follow the belief that there is a God than to not follow and find out there is a hell. I had to think of it as insurance. Better to be safe than sorry. The priest gave me the rundown, informing me that we were all born into this world with original sin, but I felt like my son had more than others. In the eyes of God, the tiny hands that could barely hold a rattle were covered, 
in my wife's blood. I was already nervous about the flight with Calvin, but as luck would have it, his ears didn't pop coming back down, and Calvin serenaded the entire plane with his heart-wrenching rendition of, There is a terrible pain in my head. What can I say? He's a natural singer. I remember dashing through the airport wary and drained from the lengthy flight, just praying for his wailing to cease, when all of a sudden, as if the sea itself had parted, he stopped. As if disarming a bomb, I nervously pulled him back from over my shoulder, where I was holding him, to see him staring wide-eyed at a stuffed animal pinned to a long trail of other stuffed animals in the small shop I was standing next to. That day, the day of his baptism, we welcomed Jake, the lovable stuffed green alligator, into our little family. For the next weeks of his life, Calvin was quiet, eerily so. That's the fear of every new parent, that something is wrong with their child. If they're too loud, too quiet, too smart, or too slow, it's a sea of endless black that you're navigating with a pen light. But the doctors assured me that he was normal. Normal is such a subjective word. But in the context of a healthy baby boy, it was perfect for me. Slowly he grew. It wasn't that he looked like his mother. His eyes, nose, and lips were all different. In fact, pretty much the only thing he got from her were his ears, which stuck out like a taxi with the doors open. Sorry, bud. No, it wasn't the look of her, but his little micro-mannerisms. The way he pointed when he wanted up. The small way he lifted his eyebrows. The crinkle his forehead made. It was all so reminiscent of her that oftentimes I would catch myself just staring at him, remembering the past. As he matured, our relationship got more complex. I never bothered dating. Between a new child and work, I was a full-time dad, which I was more than okay with. Calvin, Daddy, and Jake would go to the park, the zoo, the local science center, Hell, I had seen more of Seattle with Calvin and that little stuffed alligator than I had in the previous seven years I spent living here. But like all good things, oh well, you know the rest. The point is, Calvin grew up fast, and before I knew it, he was starting kindergarten. Leaving him at school was always the absolute darkest part of my day. Someone that had consumed so much of my life was gone from it, and... Handing him over to the teachers there was just heart-wrenching. However, seeing him again was always the highlight of my day. It was when he started school that the realization of just how much I loved being a father dawned on me. He was my whole world, and I was happy to always be his. It was around that time I started noticing my neighbor across the street. Little glances at first... A parting of the curtains, a light on in the office far later than I felt it should have been on. But it wasn't until I saw him walking from his car one day that I really started to become suspicious. He was an older man with no wife or kids, and he seemed to work from home like myself. But every time I saw him, he was looking at Calvin. The most concerning thing was that he was relatively new to the area. 
Neighbors that I had ended up becoming close with knew nothing of him. Most of them didn't even know his name, and yet I always caught him staring at our house. During the summer months, we would play outside. I would usually read on the porch while Calvin would dig holes in the lawn or run through the sprinkler. We lived on a small, quiet street just outside the city, so playing outside was always a safe and viable option. On this day, Calvin was on the lawn while I sat on the porch reading something by Michael Crichton, and after a paragraph or so, I glanced up at Cal to see the man from across the street had come walking by with his dog and was letting Cal pet it. Quickly, I stood up and briskly jogged over to them at the curbside, absentmindedly losing my place in the novel as I did. His name was Gavin, a disheveled-looking, light-skinned man who was far too smiley for my liking. He was everything a new parent feared in a neighbor, and added to the fact that he had moved in just a few weeks ago left an uneasy feeling in my stomach. I can't explain how or why I didn't trust Gavin. I like to think of it as a primal instinct, something that just feels off about someone when you meet them for the first time like our body's way of telling us to shut up and listen for once, because something isn't right. It didn't help that he seemed to be staring at my house even more frequently after that afternoon, and over time my suspicions towards him only grew. Nearly every time Cal and I were out in the front yard, he'd walk by with his dog and make small talk with Cal in a soothing and childish way, as if he were talking to his own child. It grew to the point where I decided that we should stay inside most sunny days or play in the backyard. Over time, the uneasiness I felt subsided. Though I never completely let my guard down, I did breathe easier as my nightly surveillance of his house showed that he was no longer keeping his lights on after hours. For a long time, nothing stuck. Calvin and I both saw less and less of Gavin, and by the time winter came, I had almost stopped checking his house entirely until one evening after school. That day, when I was picking Cal up from kindergarten, I noticed that Gavin was standing there at the school gate. As if acting purely on instinct, I exited my car and walked straight towards him, slowing my pace as I approached him, forcibly changing my demeanor from anger to friendly but curious. I called his name from a few feet away. With a sharp turn, he spun around. He started acting squirrely the minute he saw me and almost instinctively began to leave until I called his name again. This time, loud enough for the other parents waiting around to hear. As I stood before him, I saw the cracks in his lips, the white hairs in his peppered mustache, the lines in his face and every inch of me seethed. I could feel a heat inside me growing as he stood before me, keeping one of his hands in his pocket the entire time. Was he touching himself? Was this sicko touching himself while watching the kids in the schoolyard? As my eyes darted from his hidden hand back to his face, he smiled coyly. And with the faintest wetness in his eyes, he made some excuse about looking for his dog that had somehow gotten out and quickly excused himself. 
I watched him leave as I clenched my hands into fists, unaware of how tense I had become. From the schoolyard, I heard the bell ring, and moments later, Cal came out, holding the hand of his teacher, Mrs. Henley. She came over to me and mentioned how great Cal had been doing. It's always a proud moment for a parent when a teacher remarks at how great their child is. That night, after I tucked Calvin into bed, I went to my office to get some work done. The office is understanding of my situation and allows me to log on and off at my leisure so long as I get the work done, and I always get it done. I had just sat down as Calvin called out to me. Slowly, I climbed the stairs to find Calvin in tears from having just had a nightmare. I climbed into bed next to him, and with a soft touch, I stroked his hair as he told me of the man in his room. Softly, I told him that everything was fine, that no one was there, and that he should go back to sleep. Just as he was nodding off, he slowly sat back up, pushing off my chest, and asked where his stuffed alligator Jake was. After a begrudging sigh, I spent the next little while poking around but couldn't find him. I told Calvin that we'd look for him first thing tomorrow. And while Calvin was asleep, I slowly walked back down the stairs to my office. Just then, a quiet knock came from the front door. I turned with a puzzled look and listened again, thinking I had imagined it. And once more, a quiet knock came from the front door, and I unlocked the door and threw it open to see Gavin standing there. The color drained from my face, and my mind raced as he stood there, inches from the inside of my house, steps from the front hall, and a short jog from my sleeping child. After a moment, I slowly moved my foot behind the door and tensed my body. Gavin looked at me with his large glasses and smiled an eerie grin. The metal from his fillings twinkled in the porch light as he apologized for disturbing me. Curtly, I asked what he needed, and as if taken aback, he quickly and quietly apologized for running off so abruptly earlier that day at the schoolyard. Through his dark eyes, I saw a fire burn deep. Something sinister hid behind his gaze, and at that moment I knew that Gavin was not a good man by any means. And in that moment, I just wanted him gone. After a long pause, he held out a thin, cold hand. Hesitantly, I took it, but when I shook his hand goodbye, I noticed, for the first time, that for an older man he had a number of tattoos. My eyes gave me away, and when he noticed me looking at them, he quickly pulled his thin sweater sleeve down and mentioned that it was actually from when he had spent some time in prison. As the words left his mouth, his eyes darted nervously and the lump in my throat sank to my stomach. He smiled weakly and spun around, leaving a shadow on the porch as he did. Slowly, I closed the door and locked it tight. Standing with my back to the front door, a chill ran down my spine as my gaze drifted upward towards Calvin's room. I drove Cal to school the next day and returned home to round out the latest piece I had been working on. During the summer, when I had been watching Gavin's house nightly, I had moved my office so that the window overlooking the front lawn was right behind my desk, giving me a great view of those passing our lot and of Gavin's house across the street. 
Work was a struggle. After every line I wrote, I would look up to Gavin's house across the street, hoping, but not wanting to see something, anything, to alleviate my fears. Every sentence typed was like one step forward and two steps back. I began writing things that made no sense. I shot up out of my chair and I kicked over the coffee table in frustration. What was that sicko doing over there? I could feel the heat in my chest boiling up within me, driving my heart, which beat faster with each image that flashed through my mind. I walked to the front door and grabbed my jacket. I had to confront him. I had to do something. I stopped at the door and paused, my hand hovering above the knob. What if I was right? I was right. I knew it. What was he planning to do to my son? As images of the most horrific acts burned into my brain, questions came pouring out of my mind. What if I couldn't stop it? What if I can't help him? What if I went over there and he killed me? What stood between Gavin and my child then? Between Gavin and my son. My life. My entire world. I turned around and walked to the kitchen with determination in my steps. Every step on the hardwood floor clicked beneath my shoes. And without so much as a break in my stride, I retrieved a large kitchen knife from the wooden block on the counter. I turned around to face the front door, my legs giving out as I fell to the floor, weeping. What was I doing? What had I become? Nothing about this was normal or right. Should I put on blinders? Should I go about my business and live my life praying that Cal grows up without being molested or kidnapped or worse, just hoping that he grows up at all? For as long as I could remember, an Edmund Burke quote hung by my desk. I had always thought it sounded crisp the way the phrase turned, but maybe it was meant to be more than that to me. It read, All that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. In that moment, I knew that I would do anything to protect my son and that nothing in this world would stand in the way of that. With tears in my eyes, I stood up and slipped the knife into my jacket pocket. I left the house and wiped tears from my eyes as I closed the front door behind me. I stopped halfway across the street as I noticed that Gavin's car was gone. After a quick knock on the front door, my suspicions were confirmed. Gavin was indeed out for the day. Slowly, I looked around the street. During the day, it was always quiet, but today, not even the wind blew. No one and nothing, save the snow-peaked houses, sat watching. After a moment, I walked around back, and sure enough, the back door was unlocked. With fire in my stomach, I stepped inside. Stepping into the house was a waking nightmare. Its corners were dark and muddy. All the curtains were drawn, and little to no natural light 
touched a single surface. He had only been here for a short while, but he had already turned this house into a cesspool. Plates and dirty dishes littered the counter and showed early signs of mold. Clothes were strewn about, and the floor was covered with dirt and dust. Slowly, I stepped in and called his name, quietly listening for movement. As I continued inwards, I looked over my shoulder every once in a while, again calling out Gavin's name to ensure that he wasn't home. The house sat in a putrid tableau of filth, but my suspicions for trespassing were not supported by anything I could see. That was until I found the basement. My heart beat wildly as I descended a set of cold cement steps into the cellar. At the bottom of the stairs, I could see a single light bulb hanging on a string, and nervously, I gave it a pull, filling the basement with shadows cast by the single yellow light. Sitting across from an old stained couch was a large cork board affixed to the stone wall of the basement. I walked over and studied it with cold prejudice, like a herder surveying the grassy field for wolves. Pinned to the board were pictures the schoolyard, the name of Cal's school. Then my heart sank. There was a picture of Cal, standing there with his teacher holding her hand, his blonde hair and soft brown eyes that were so unlike his mother's. But Cal's hair was shorter in this picture, and his teacher was wearing a sundress, so... As I reached out and took the picture from the board, it dawned on me that this picture was taken months ago in the early summer, before Gavin had even moved here. I turned away from the board as tears began to well in my eyes, and as I did, I nearly choked. There, sitting on the couch, was Jake, Cal's stuffed alligator. The room started spinning. Had he been in my house? Did he go into Cal's room? What would have happened if I hadn't found this? Cal is my life. He's my world, and everything I do is for him. I would do anything for him. What would the police do with this? It isn't enough, but I know what it is, what it means. It's the sick, twisted pedophile across the street who wants to rape and murder my son. Flames flicked from every pore as the fire within me raged, wild and untamed. I could taste the bitter sting of bile on the back of my tongue, and the iron-like taste of blood filled my mouth as my whole body quaked with anger. My little boy... My Calvin. Pascal's wager. Better to be safe than sorry. I couldn't care less if I spend eternity in hell, but I'm not putting Calvin through that. It was at that moment that I heard Gavin come home. Slowly, I pulled the knife from my jacket pocket, switched off the light above my head, and waited at the bottom of the stairs for him in the darkness. Dust 
fell from the ceiling like brown bits of snow as each floorboard above creaked and groaned under Gavin's weight. I could hear him in the kitchen above and after a pause. He turned to the stairs and began walking down the cold cement steps to the basement. I rose silently in the shadows and waited until he was right before me. With each step, the cold click of his heel matched the beat of my heart. And finally, as if acting on muscle memory alone, he reached for the light just as I turned it on. There, inches from my face, was Gavin, with tears welling in his eyes. A stream of questions ripped through my mind in an instant. Why are you crying? Are you crying because you didn't get to rape and murder my son? Are you crying because I'm here to find you out? You snake! You pathetic sickle! Are you thinking about the lives of all those you've taken? How many was it? How many little children have you raped and murdered? You disgusting, foul waste of a man. You are filth. And you deserve to rot like a pig. Gavin simply stood there, frozen in the moment, as tears ran down his cheeks. Thoughts raced through my mind as I glanced back and forth between Gavin's eyes. And after a beat, he simply looked down at the knife in my hand with a puzzled and pained look. Through his spit-filled mouth, he managed to sputter out a single word before I pierced his stomach with the blade. As I drove, the knife repeatedly into his abdomen. The pained look of confusion that painted his face slowly twisted into a horrific scream. With my free hand, I grabbed his lower jaw with such force that I could feel his lower teeth, brittle and warm, bend beneath my palm. I'm not going to describe what I did. Suffice it to say that I was eventually only stabbing a pulpy mess of sinew and guts. By the time I was done, the tip of the knife had been driven with such force that it was embedded into the cement stairs. With speckles of blood on my face and shoes, I sat back, wiping the tears from my eyes. As I sat slumped at the bottom of the stairs, <laughs> With the lifeless corpse of this monster beside me, I could feel myself starting <laughs> to breathe again. As I filled my lungs with the iron-filled air. After a moment, I reached out, <laughs> grabbing a wet piece of his shirt, and wiped down the hilt of my knife before driving it one last time into his head leaving the blade protruding from his cheek. The way a revolting pedophile should be left. Eventually, I caught my breath and stood up. 
I walked over to Jake on the couch and, with a smile, I went to pick him up. Stopping when I realized that it wasn't Jake. In fact, it, it wasn't even a stuffed animal. It was a green t-shirt that was thrown carelessly on the couch with the other clothes. <laughs> clothes from the laundry. <laughs> In the dark of the basement, I let out a weak laugh and shook my head softly. I turned away from the couch and walked up the cold stone steps to the main floor, stepping over Gavin's lifeless body. I left through the back door, taking one last look at the putrid cesspool of a life this man had lived, and I went home. In the shower, I kept thinking over what had transpired. It was like a dream, something that didn't happen. I kept replaying the moment over and over in my head. The feeling of give while holding the knife the second it pierced his flesh. Those bits of skin and muscle that loosened with each stab. The look on his face as I took his life. It had felt good. It had felt good to do something right. To stand in the way of evil men. <laughs> I had totally lost track at the time, and it had been nearly an hour since school had finished, but... Luckily, Mrs. Henley arrived at our door a little while ago with Cal. When I saw him, my heart nearly burst. And when he ran into my arms, I couldn't help but giggle like a kid. He's the kind of child that brings it out of me. I thanked Mrs. Henley profusely and invited her in for a cup of tea, which she reluctantly accepted. We talked for a while. She is quite beautiful, you know. But I couldn't help but notice that she had a sadness behind her eyes. Now, normally I wouldn't pry, but as Cal played in the other room, I coaxed it out of her. She told me that an older man had come to her school today claiming to be her father. A man who spent the last ten years of his life in prison for breaking and entering. A man who could never be the kind of father I am to Cal. Her words, not mine. She even said, you're the perfect father. <laughs> I have to admit it. It made my heart flutter a tad. And before she left, she reminded Cal not to leave his toys at school again and handed Jake back to him. And you know what? He said thank you. I didn't have to prompt him or remind him or anything. He looked right at her and said thank you. I've never been so proud of him. My Cal. My Calvin. I've always loved the name Calvin. Amazing the length some will go to in the name of parental protection. 
So give that some thought the next time you go to pinch the cheeks of some cute little urchin. And pay extra special attention to the proud parent. After a final message to make sure the inmates keep running the asylum and sweeping the snow off the doorstep of my crypt, we'll bring you up to date on what's next for the world of the Simply Scary Podcast. Hey Jim, I can't figure out how to use this weird European broom you bought over from Transylvania. No, the broom goes forward, not backwards. Ah. Hi, everybody. This is Archibald Carlisle here. Just wanted to tell you to subscribe below so you get all the updates on what's coming up and what's coming out with this simply scary podcast and chilling tales for dark nights. So click that button and share us with everyone you know. Otherwise, I'll have to come looking for you. You don't want that, do you? And now, back to the show. Thanks for sticking around after the stories. We're definitely going to make it worth your while. For those authors listening in the audience, reach out to us at contact at simplyscarypodcast.com and schedule a free consultation on how chilling tales for dark nights and chilling entertainment can help you adapt your work into an audiobook suitable for sites such as audible.com. If you have a story that you think has what it takes to be featured on our podcast, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Submit a Story at the top of the page and we'll see if your tale is simply terrifying enough to be produced for our broadcast. On February 15th, 2017, Chilling Tales for Dark Nights will be launching a campaign to fund our most ambitious project yet. An animated series featuring art from the mind of artist Mr. David Romero. Three of his awe-inspiring animations, Midnight Snack, Other Lily, and Pine Devil, are currently featured on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, and we feel they, pardon the pun, illustrate just how high-octane our nightmare fuel can be. You can make this a reality, funding adaptation of such favorites as The Scarecrow Corpse, performed by Markiplier himself, as well as new productions. Subscribe below to stay tuned in to this upcoming project and learn more in the coming month about the special rewards that will come with your support. Another way you can show support is by becoming a patron today. Your support will help fund our future productions and give you access to the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights library of audio experiences in the highest quality possible digital downloads, plus other never-before-released extras you won't find anywhere else. Go to simplyscarypodcast.com and click the Patrons button at the top of the page. 
Our channel and entertainment experiences are fully fan-funded, so turn off the lights and turn on the dark yourself by becoming a patron after the show. It's time to reveal our lucky iTunes review. This week's superfan is... Resifex. And Resifex writes... The perfect podcast for horror. The stories are amazing, the host is awesome, and the narrators are some of the best in the business. Hope this stays going forever and a day. I only wish I could get more of it. You are all awesome. And thank you for keeping me up at night. (laughs) Thank you, Resivax, for leaving us your encouraging feedback. It's up to you, the listener, to keep this going forever and a day. And with your support, you may just be getting more simply scary. But we need you to do your part to make that happen. So become a patron today, subscribe, and make Simply Scary all the simpler this holiday and the next with everyone you know. Resivex will need you to send a screenshot of your iTunes profile page along with your profile name and your comment to contact at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you want to hear me recite your review in my buttery tones, a $999 value by the way, subscribe to Simply Scary on iTunes and leave us a review, preferably with five stars. It makes me so excited when I see all those stars that I dress an intern in a toga and make them recite monologues from Titus Andronicus. Uh, But this is GM Danielson, thanking you for joining us for this broadcast. Remember, listeners, that one definition of insanity is repeating the same actions while expecting a different outcome. So why do the villagers keep knocking on my castle door? They get the same results every time. But we will see you next time, when we show you there's nothing simple about being scared. Unless, of course, it is the Simply Scary Podcast. Swing low, This is executive producer Jesse Cornett. If you like what you hear, be sure to check out more from these authors at simplyscarypodcast.com. There you can find all information regarding the show and the stories appearing here in our podcast. The Simply Scary Podcast is a production of Chilling Entertainment. The showcase is written by Jesse Cornett and Dustin Kosky and produced by Jesse Cornett. The host of the Simply Scary Podcast is GM Danielson. Original music during the show by Jesse Cornett. This broadcast was directed and created by Craig Groshek. Be sure to look for the Simply Scary Podcast on iTunes. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star review. Comments or questions? Email us at contact at simplyscarypodcast.com and check our website for more information. 
While you're there, consider clicking on the patrons link at the top of the page to help support our show. Copyright Chilling Entertainment LLC 2016. Thanks for listening. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.